Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Women Have No Tribe, Gender in African Tradition. If you had to choose, would you rather be a woman living in medieval Europe or a woman in pre-colonial Africa? Your first reaction is probably that you'd quite like to have a third choice, given that neither prospect would involve reliable internet access. But if forced to choose, you might instead realize that you'd like to hear a bit more about both possibilities. There's a big difference between the life of a female Anglo-Saxon peasant and Eleanor of Aquitaine, after all. So what kind of medieval woman would you be? And the same applies to traditional African societies. As always, we need to bear in mind the diversity of those societies and of the people who lived in them. Nor should we assume that the most important fact about any person living in pre-colonial Africa would have been gender. Just as Eleanor of Aquitaine's royal lineage was arguably a far more significant influence on her life than the fact that she was a woman, so the experiences of those living in traditional African societies would be determined not just by being a man or a woman, but by being as yet unmarried or by being an elder of the village, or by the fact that the surrounding culture lives from, say, cattle, as opposed to hunting or farming. Is there something more general to say on this topic? Something that would help to identify a quintessentially and perhaps uniquely African attitude towards gender? One attempt to do just that was made by the Senegalese polymath Sheikh Anta Diop, who died in 1986. He was, among other things, an anthropologist, Egyptologist, and linguist. In a book written in French in 1963, he marshaled these various skills to put forward a bold account of the cultural unity of black Africa, this being the title of his monograph. Actually, the book is not only about Africa. It begins by criticizing earlier theorists like J.J. Bachhoven and Friedrich Engels, who saw male-dominated or patriarchal societies as having supplanted more primitive societies that were matriarchal, dominated by women. According to this theory, the rule of men over women simply marks a higher stage of human development, in which spirituality and reason replace barbarism. Diop accepts the basic contrast between two ways of organizing human communities, patriarchal and matriarchal, but he sees the two paradigms as being realized in different places, rather than at different times. As he puts it, humanity has from the beginning been divided into two geographically distinct cradles, one of which was favorable to the flourishing of matriarchy and the other to that of patriarchy. One cradle lies in the north and encompasses, as chance would have it, the lands that usually attract the attention of historians of philosophy, Europe, of course, and more generally the sphere of Indo-European culture. The other cradle lies in the south and especially in Africa. There is a good reason for the contrast, which comes down to differences in climate. In the north, conditions favored the emergence of a physically demanding nomadic lifestyle. In the South, by contrast, the environment encouraged early adoption of agriculture and a pastoral way of life. In this sort of setting, Diop writes, woman can, in spite of her physical inferiority, contribute substantially to the economic life. These tendencies were then passed on to later generations. Even after the Indo-European nomads of the northern cradle settled down, they kept their women secluded in domestic spaces. But in Africa, women had always been a key part of the workforce and retained their cultural authority. 
Thus, we see that in ancient Egypt, the pharaoh's claim to rule was established by appeal to matrilineal descent, hence the practice of marrying their sisters. The story of the Queen of Sheba fits nicely with Diop's thesis, as do patterns of inheritance and naming in African society. Even supernatural abilities in traditional African belief are often supposed to be passed on through the mother's side of the family. It is only with the coming of Islam, Diop argues, with its markers of northern patriarchy, that this unifying feature of culture in Africa starts to be undermined. Diop's thesis has much in common with other ambitious theories we've covered in recent episodes, such as Mbiti's claim that the African conception of time includes little or no idea of the future, or Idowu's argument that African religion should be classified as diffused monotheism. We have found such bold proposals to be useful, in that they point towards genuinely interesting features of traditional African cultures and raise numerous philosophical questions in the process. But we've also found that such sweeping generalizations need, at the very least, to be qualified and hedged around with caveats, in part because of the aforementioned diversity of Africa. Much the same verdict should be passed upon Diop's thesis. One might, of course, challenge his claims about the northern cradle, but for our purposes, let's focus on his claims about the southern cradle of Africa, asking whether we do find there a widespread tendency towards matriarchy thanks to a widespread pastoral way of life. The answer is, of course, sort of. In the decades following Diop's work, archaeologists have been increasingly interested in the question of gender in the African Stone Age and Iron Age. We can begin by noting that both nomadic and pastoral or sedentary ways of life are indigenous to Africa, with sedentary populations sometimes pushing out nomadic ones but never fully eliminating them. While this obviously casts serious doubt on the idea of a southern cradle, there is some evidence that his basic intuition was right and that the social status of women may be different in these two kinds of social organization. There is some evidence that women can possess more autonomy and outright political power in settled communities. It would be there that we have the phenomenon of female royalty. Yet, some anthropologists think that, for more typical women, status would have diminished in the transition from migrant to sedentary cultures, the opposite of Diop's hypothesis. In hunter-gatherer populations, there is a relatively egalitarian situation where all group members are providing food. Sedentary cultures tend to have somewhat more complex societal structures in the sense that some groups dominate over others, with men often taking the leadership roles for themselves. Thus, we see in the case of early Iron Age Africa, so up to about 1300 AD, that there is little evidence for the division of social spaces between the women and men, whereas this does emerge in the late Iron Age, along with practices of male chieftainship. Likewise, sedentary societies in Africa that live off herds of cattle have sometimes designated the area with the cow pens as male and the domestic spaces as female even burying dead men and women in the relevant areas of the village. Lying behind such findings could be a basic human tendency to assign certain tasks to women and others to men, with the two sexes having equal or unequal status depending on how valued these tasks are seen to be. It has been said that the sexual division of labor is the original and most basic form of economic specialization. But there is room for debate as to whether tasks were divided neatly between men and women in very early African societies. 
We tend simply to assume that among hunter-gatherers, the men do the hunting and the women do the gathering, but that may not be true. Bringing down big game with spears may have needed participation of as many people as possible, of whichever sex, and anthropologists have observed among some modern-day hunter-gatherers that women are involved in the hunting, for instance by chasing animals towards the men who are waiting to pounce with nets. A skeptic might respond to this, that such recent evidence is not obviously applicable to peoples of the distant past. Anthropologist Susan Kent has argued that the fact that modern bushmen or San behave in a specific way is irrelevant for archaeology except to expose fallacies of overgeneralization. So how are we to decide this question, given that, as one other anthropologist puts it, you can't dig up gender? Actually, there are surprisingly many resources on which to draw, alongside the projection of modern ethnographic data back on to much earlier times. We already mentioned the possibility of finding divided spaces in archaeological dig sites. Here one needs to be cautious to avoid just assuming that, say, the areas with cooking utensils were for women, the areas with weapons for men. Archaeology can also join forces with ethnography. A study of Iron Age sites found ritual objects buried under the smelting pits, which seems to bear out what modern-day anthropologists report about ritual beliefs surrounding traditional African iron-making among the Barongo in Tanzania. They conceptualize iron ore as a maternal stuff that the male smelter works on and shapes, just as the male seed shapes a child in procreation. More explicit, in every sense of the word, evidence can be found in the form of rock art, which across Africa consistently marks the gender of human figures, for instance by depicting the sexual organs of men and the buttocks of women. Rock art also bears out, at least to some extent, the hypothesis that tasks were divided between the sexes, as when showing men with bow and arrow and women with digging sticks. Rock art from the Sahara region has been noted to depict women more often than men, raising the tantalizing possibility that women were dominant among the groups that produced the art. How does Diop's thesis fare if we advance forward in history to more recent sedentary societies that retain a traditional way of life? Here we must go back to our opening point that sexual difference is only one kind of difference, and that even a culture that values males above females may well exalt some females above almost everyone. Consider the report of some Victorian-era British nurses living in Zimbabwe in the 1890s. They encountered a socially powerful woman named Nyaku Waniqua, who, they reported, accepted tea passing her mug after drinking to the two men who sat behind her. These were two of her husbands. We were told that she had several, whom she divorced or knocked on the head as seemed most convenient. The story exemplifies the way that women can occupy authoritative positions, but not simply because they are women. The most common reason for this would be relative seniority. In a group where husbands have authority over their wives, it could still be the case that a senior wife has authority over junior wives and also over younger men. One study has suggested that just this happens among the Akan, with individuals changing their place in the societal power structure as they age. Especially crucial is the transition to adulthood and parenthood, so that men are sometimes mocked for having had no children, and older women take on a role equivalent to that of an adult man. Similarly, we find that among the Shona in Zimbabwe and the Tsetswana of Botswana, older women outrank all younger people, and that unmarried men have low status. 
All this is in keeping with the Tswana proverb, old people are the pillars of this nation. That a woman can step into a relatively masculine position is confirmed by another of their sayings that exalts women who are able to take over their husband's work if needed. The wife is the man and bull of the family. African religions offer us another context in which to observe nuanced conceptions of gender and the way that gender interacts with other status markers. In many systems, a central place is given to female deities. To go back to Idowu's notion of diffused monotheism, in cultures where a supreme god is recognized, this god is often male, yet often has a female partner. And among people who are actually, you know, human, it is often assumed by ethnographers that women play a subordinate role in religion, but this assumption has been challenged in studies of women who perform as spirit mediums. Like being an elder, being a medium can give a woman a special status and power, linked with her ability to heal or to prophesy the future. Women sometimes dominate the rituals that accompany possession, while the possession itself may be metaphorically described in terms of motherhood or pregnancy. But there is room for doubt as to whether this really amounts to authority or agency for the medium herself. For one thing, the possession is temporary, and the medium's subservience may be reinstated as soon as it ends, much as in Europe, not all that long ago, servants might be served by their masters on Christmas, but kept firmly in their place the rest of the year. For another thing, the medium would typically deny that she is the one bringing about the possession. As that analogy to pregnancy suggests, her role is receptive or even passive, and it is the spirit who is really the agent. Thus far, we've been making an assumption so basic that you probably haven't noticed it, that people are unproblematically divided into two genders, male and female. But some scholars have disputed this assumption when it comes to Africa. Particularly notable have been Oyeronke Oyewumi and Ifi Amadiume. In 1997, Oyewumi published a book on the Yoruba called The Invention of Women. She noted the absence of gender markers in Yoruba pronouns, another example of something we've seen many times, as tacit philosophical notions are inferred from the features of African languages. She also pointed to something we've already noted, the way that social roles depend on factors like seniority or bachelorhood rather than on gender, and also to the existence of Yoruba deities, or orisha, that seem to lack gender entirely. From all this, Oyewumi reached the conclusion that women, or females, do not really constitute a single social category in Yoruba culture. The very concept of a female gender was imposed relatively recently from the outside by colonial powers. To this, critics have responded that even if seniority can override gender, it usually works as a coordinate rather than as an alternative to it that gender is sometimes projected onto the intrinsically genderless Yoruba deities, and that Yoruba beliefs about witchcraft do seem to be highly gendered. Thus women are thought to have supernatural powers by a natural gift, whereas men acquire it as a learned skill, and men take responsibility for punishing witches. Another feminist approach to African culture argues not that gender is an imported concept, but that it is to be found there, but in a surprisingly unstable or fluid form. This is what we have with Ifi Amadiume and her 1987 book, Male Daughters, Female Husbands, which is based on reportage from the author's hometown of Enobi in the Igbo region of Nigeria. As the title indicates, 
Amadiume is, among other things, interested in the way that women take on apparently male family roles. A female husband is a relatively prosperous or senior woman who takes on a younger woman as a wife to give her married status. The wife may then have children with men from the female husband's family. This is not unique. A more recent study about the similar practice of Iweto marriage between women in Kenya mentions that about 40 pre-colonial African societies are known to have had an institution like this. As Betty Wambui has pointed out, the idea that wives could belong to other women complicates the more typical pattern of women becoming in some sense the property of men when they are married. As for the male daughters, these are the women in a household who, because they are on the father's side of the family, outrank senior women who have married in. One of Amadiume's informants explained the practice as follows. Had they been men, they would have had the same power as lineage men. For this reason, lineage wives will bow down their heads to lineage daughters. If the daughters tell them to leave, they'll pack their things and go. Conversely, Amadiume also reports that men who are priests of the goddess Idemili dress like women, effectively becoming female men. There are also authoritative roles that are not gendered at all. For instance, the title Dinubo, meaning master of the household, can be occupied by either a man or a woman. These findings tend to confirm an idea fundamental to contemporary feminist philosophy. Gender is socially constructed, so much so that people who are women in terms of their biological sex can become men in terms of their gender. More concretely, it is obvious that, at least in Enobi, there are plenty of mechanisms by which women can accrue social standing and power. This is reflected in religious beliefs. The community worships a male god named Aho, who is partnered with the aforementioned goddess Idimili, but in stories about their relationship, as Amadiume puts it, Aho is seen as a man struggling to maintain a male authority over a very wealthy, independent, and popular woman. Yet, Amadiume also reports features of this society that look more patriarchal. When a girl is born, she is called a bag of money because her main value to the family is to bring in bride wealth. Traditional gender dynamics are fluid in another sense, too, in that they are subject to change over time. In the colonial and post-colonial periods, there have been rapid transformations in gender roles and relations. Some observers believe that the coming of Christianity has led to greater oppression of women, but such traditional practices as polygamous marriages and the payment of bride wealth, which might or might not be seen as unfavorable to women, are becoming less frequent. Yet change is not only a result of outside influence. African societies have never been static, even in the Stone Age and Iron Age, though change in those periods was no doubt slower in developing. To take just one remarkable example, anthropologists have discovered through analysis of human remains in the coastal region of southern Africa that before about 3000 BC, male and female diets were the same, but after that time a contrast emerges with more shellfish being consumed by the men who were presumably more directly involved in collecting this resource. A much more recent and more complicated case concerns a people who lived not far from Amadiume's town of Nobi in southeastern Nigeria. These are the Ohafia, who live on the frontier of the territory dominated by the Igbo people. In the 19th century, Ohafia men and women were working at cross-purposes with different ideals of what their ethnic identity should be. 
The men tended to understand themselves as part of the Igbo and formed their identity around warfare and the capture of slaves. The women, though, attempted to build political alliances with non-Igbo groups, especially through intermarriage. At one point in this rather complicated story, all the women of one village decamped to a different location to bring pressure to bear on their menfolk. Part of what was at stake here was a clash between the Igbo patrilineal culture, in other words, passing down family identity through the father's side, and the matrilineal customs that had prevailed up to that time among the Ohafia. Those customs helped to explain the political power held by the women of the community. In a patrilineal culture, women who marry and leave their family may easily wind up in the position we described before, like guests in another home and potentially subservient to the so-called male daughters. As one adage has it, women have no tribe, meaning that brides risk losing their kin group when they gain a husband. The strife within the Ohafia community displays many of the themes we've raised in this episode. The possibility of change in gender dynamics, the ability of women to exert political and social influence in these traditional societies, and the linking of gender to certain activities or tasks like warfare. But it is only one highly specific example, and other examples might suggest other conclusions. Unlike Diop, we are skeptical as to whether there is one conception of gender that unifies Africa, whether prehistoric, historic, or contemporary. Yet, Diop's thesis leads in the right general direction, forcing us to question lazy assumptions about the powerlessness of women in traditional or pre-modern societies. This is a point of philosophical significance in its own right. In today's academic life, we see much analysis and critique of gender attitudes. Within these academic debates and in wider society, it is often assumed that traditional and pre-modern human societies have been marked exclusively by patriarchy and clear gender roles, as if the social mores of 1950s suburban America were simply a manifestation of the human condition. The work of authors like Oyewumi and Amadume shows that feminists can deny that basic assumption by drawing on a broader range of cultural research. And the strength of women in traditional African societies has an implication for the philosophical enterprise we've been following over the last several episodes. We have been devoting attention to oral traditions in Africa and their philosophical importance, but something we have hardly considered is the gender of the people who pass on these stories, though this did come up to some extent in our interview with Sam Imbo about Okot Pabitek. Work by male ethnographers has often been based especially on work with male informants, which threatens to give us a skewed picture of these cultures. It has been shown that different proverbs, songs, and stories are passed down by men and by women. Some of the material relevant for Africana philosophy would, in other words, have been learned quite literally at grandmother's knee. We should bear this in mind alongside other possible criticisms of so-called ethno-philosophy, which we'll be looking at soon, and also in considering an alternative paradigm for studying philosophy in traditional African culture called sage philosophy, with the sages in question typically being men. But before we get into that, we'll be meeting a sage who is not a man, and who will give us further insight into the role of gender in African societies, the impact of colonialism on those societies, and even the philosophical importance of African artworks. That's all in our next episode, an interview with Nkiru Nzegwu, here on The History of African Philosophy. Thank you.